Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, regardless of your uh, political leanings or, or opinions, uh, it is a great blessing to live in a country where there is a, tran- a, a peaceable transfer of power um, from one administration uh, to the next. Uh, we saw that eight years ago uh, with uh, President Bush to President Obama. We saw that uh, this week with President Obama to President Trump. Uh, it, is a, it, is, it is a privilege and um, <clears throat> The kindness of God that uh, not every country experiences. And uh, we should be thankful uh, for the peaceful transfer of power. In the scriptures here in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a transfer of power that's not necessarily so peaceful. In fact, very violent. And this is a transfer of power from the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, to the kingdom of Christ, the king of the universe. And this passage here is like taking one of those capsule, supplement capsules. Do you ever take a a supplement in capsule form uh, for your health? Uh, It has like all your vitamins, it has all your minerals, and it's all concentrated in this little two or three capsules. And you swallow those things because they taste horrible. There's a reason they taste horrible, because it's all concentrated in this little tiny tube that's supposed to dissolve in your stomach and give you everything you need. This passage is like one of those capsules. It is taking the whole book of Hebrews, and it is shrinking it down in the capsule form and saying, this is the thrust of the message of Hebrews. This is what it's all about. And and, uh, this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, is is all the five warnings of Hebrews. It's all the... uh, uh, the the point of what he has he has explained in the, about the Old Testament law and the fulfillment of Christ it is all now concentrated into these twelve verses and so therefore we need to take particular heed and attention to what the Holy Spirit has written for us today if you want to understand what the Book of Hebrews is about it's these verses here. It is these verses. Do not go back. Come to Christ. And stay in Christ. And continue in Christ. These are people in an audience who has been tempted to forsake the things that they have been taught, have been tempted to leave the things that they say they have professed faith in as times have become difficult. Pressures have been mounted. Some of them have lost property. Property has been seized. Some of them have been thrown into prison for Christ. And they're wondering, is it really worth it? It would be so easy if I just went back to where I was before when I didn't have these pressures and this book and this particular passage is telling them, no, don't abandon it. Press on. Press on. If you place the world's pleasures ahead of the promises of God, there is no hope found in that. You'll find no hope. Like the example of Esau in chapter 12, verse 16, who traded the promises of Christ for a bowl of stew for his belly. You'll find no hope, only emptiness, only more guilt, only shame. And what God has offered and He has given you in Christ is great. uh, uh, And it is better than anything you will ever experience. But a mind wrapped up in the world says, no, 
A bowl of stew is looking pretty good. What God offers, that's, that's great, but this bowl of stew is better. And the bowl of stew is going back to the world without Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, he reminds them of, first of all, the limits of Sinai. The limits of Sinai. He mentions two mountains here. You're going to see the Mount Sinai and you're going to see the Mount Zion. <clears throat> and explain a little bit more of what that's referring to after you read these verses. Verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burn with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken of them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. What he's referring to is when God gave the law to Israel. At Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And, and uh, it was as if there was a, a heaving volcano there at Mount Sinai. As God's presence and all His holiness and His glory came upon the mountain. And the people recognized how fallen they were from the glory of God. How far they were uh, uh, from, the, from the beauty of God's holiness. And they, and they shook and they were frightened. And they realized God could not be approached on their own righteousness because of the sin that was upon them. There was a limit here at Mount Sinai. God revealed His law to Moses and passed on to Moses, the mediator, the, the, the presenter of the, of, the, of the Old Covenant, uh, the law of Moses. And he, he transferred that law. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four tells us through angels to Moses. He uh, gave them the, ta- the, 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 excuse me, the two tablets. But the author says, you're not coming to that mount. That's not the mountain you have come to. That mountain was a mountain you could touch. So first of all, the limit of Sinai was that it was a physical, physical situation there. Uh, mount Sinai was a physical mountain. You can see it today. Uh, the lim- other limit of Mount Sinai was that it was unapproachable. It was unapproachable. You see that all through these verses here. Um, <clears throat> This was the mountain that burned with fire, blackness, darkness, storm. It's like a heaving volcano. Uh, the sound of a trumpet that they couldn't even uh, they, they they couldn't even bear to hear. Uh, and in verse twenty, they could not endure that which was commanded. They couldn't hold up to it. If so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So not even an animal could come to this mountain. It had its limits. It was physical. It was unapproachable. It was also unattainable. Unattainable. God gave His law to Moses in order to help Moses live under His ways. But folks, He had to institute a sacrificial system because they could not keep this law. They could not hold to God's law. And we, we, can, we can think, I mean, there are 613, I believe, laws of Moses, and uh, they're, they're summed up in those Ten Commandments, correct? And, and, uh, and, and the very first of these commandments says, You shall have no other gods before me. The second one says, You shall not make a, a, a physical form of me, a graven image that's blasphemy to me. 
And they go down the line and uh, uh, four of them refer to a horizontal relationship with God and, and the other six refer to Israel's uh, relationships with each other, how to love God perfectly and how to love each other perfectly in holiness. But you know what? Nobody kept it perfectly. And the law was more like the broom that, 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 that sweeps and, and shows how, how dirty that pile of dirt in the, in the corner of the room is. And so it was unattainable. Sinai just revealed the need for someone to come and be the perfect sacrifice. Someone to, to, uh, to, to fulfill the law uh, without error, without disobedience, and perfect righteousness. And you'll notice very obviously that the limit of Sinai also was something that it was, it was a terrifying sight. Terrifying. Look in verse 21. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. The limit of Mount Sinai. So many different ways here. The law. The law of God. Trying to keep the law of God. And man's own power without the Spirit of God. Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8 reminds us of this. That God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And in this new covenant, my law is going to be written on your heart. How I desire for you to live for my glory is going to be written on your heart. And it's not going to be like you trying to put on a, a new outfit and, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, uh, do things in and of your own power. But the Spirit of God is going to be inside of you. And so there's a contrast here with the following verses because now there's Mount Sinai, but then he says in verse 22, But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a contrast here. A contrast uh, in Sinai with the holiness of God that was terrifying and unapproachable. And the holiness now, because of Jesus, the same holiness hasn't changed. But because of Jesus, that is welcoming, it is cleansing, and it is healing. Look at, look at, look at the, um, uh, the welcoming nature of this. He says, You are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and listen, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect or complete. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So if Sinai was all about the limits of man in reflection of God's holiness, then Zion is about the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Father graciously gave us His Son. What is the grace of Zion all about? Well, notice there's a spiritual promise. Um, Zion was limited in that it was physical. This, in verse 22, says you're coming to Mount Zion. He's not talking about a literal city on this earth here. He's talking about the spiritual kingdom of God. The city that that Abraham and Moses looked forward to in chapter 11. The city that was not on this earth. 
He says, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> you have come to this city. So the grace of Zion is that this is a spiritual thing, so it gets beyond the externals and gets to the heart, which is our biggest problem. But the grace of Zion is a grace here that is a grace that is welcoming the angels, the church, the spirits of just men made perfect, God. We can draw near, we have come, we can come in, we can come to God. When he describes the the uh, innumerable company of angels, the words that are used there gives us the, the idea that this is a festival of angels. This is a this is a, an assembly of countless angels in, in heaven. An assembly of countless angels in celebration. Now, I don't know how angels celebrate. It was probably a little bit more than what we just did a few minutes ago. There's probably some some uh, some some real passion. There was I would assume that angels know how to throw a party. This here is a group of beings that are not men. They are angels. They have these particular angels have never sinned, but they are beings who every spiritual heartbeat is about the passion of serving their God. Can you imagine what that scene must be? The Bible talks about myriads of angels. In other words, there's so many that there is not a number that can be put on them. A festival assembled of countless angels in celebration of God and His glory. But not only angels, this welcoming committee here, he says, is also to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. These are new covenant saints. The New Testament church, firstborns, is actually the the word there. The church of the firstborn. Firstborn is actually a plural word. Church of the firstborns. And what it means is is, uh, the firstborns of Christ, the joint heirs of Christ. People in the new co- uh, who had been made new in the new covenant and, and have gone and died and gone on before us. Welcoming. Joint heirs of Christ. But not only that, because Christ's power and His work was sufficient to save those also who had not seen the Messiah. Old Testament saints. And so He says... The church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect or made complete. I think that last phrase there is referring to old covenant saints. Old covenant saints that have now been made complete in Christ. Say, well, where does that come from? Well, look at the end of chapter 11 where he lists these Old Testament saints. And in verse 30, 39, he says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They never saw Jesus. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In heaven they received their completion, perfection in Christ. Old Covenant Saints. What a family. What a welcoming group. Did you ever have a welcoming party and you've been gone for a while and 
come back to your family or come back to uh, a work after being out for a while and have a welcoming party back. What a small taste of this true festival of celebration. This is the grace of Zion. This is a spiritual uh, uh, mountain. This is a spiritual kingdom, but it is a welcoming grace. A welcoming grace. And it's beautiful. But notice he also says, sandwiched in this, he says, and to God, the judge of all. The judge of the living and the dead. And the point is this, Mount Zion and the living God whose home it is, 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 is not telling us that in Mount Sinai, holiness mattered, but Mount Zion, God's holiness doesn't matter. That's, that's not what he's telling us. He's not telling us, like some would teach, that the Old Testament was about God angering people, and the New Testament is about a, a God of love. No, what he's telling us is that holiness and justice has been attained and found in the person of Christ. A a, a way has been found and accomplished through which the holiness that you and I could not keep up under Moses' law has been achieved in Jesus. And every feature of this heavenly city in verses 22 through 24 is shouting out the fact that those who live in the city are not those who have just been told simply to come as they are and stay that way. But they are people in whom the lavish grace of God has worked, has saved, has transformed, and they belong as of right by sheer grace in this city. Not because holiness didn't matter, but because holiness did matter, and Jesus Christ the righteous satisfied that holiness. And you see that in verse 24. It's like he lists these things, and then in verse 24 he says, (coughs) takes a deep breath and he says, And to Jesus and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The one who ratified the new covenant with the blood. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You see, the other thing that shows us that this is a grace, this is a grace-filled kingdom, is that this work is finished. I cannot add any more to Jesus' work. Jesus didn't do 99.9% and now I have to just fill in that 0.01% and I get in. No. This is Jesus' finished work. Jesus with His blood, His work with His blood, sealed and finished. He's our advocate. He's our stand-in. He's our intercessor. He's our basis for right standing with the Holy God. And Jesus' blood speaks better than that of Abel. What did Abel's blood speak? It spoke condemnation, right? The Lord said to Cain, Your brother Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was he saying? He's saying, you're under condemnation because of what you did to Abel. God's justice had to come down on Cain. But Jesus' blood speaks better than that of Abel. It is not condemnation, but He's speaking of mercy and grace. That justice has been satisfied like we sang today. Nothing more needs to be said. His blood shouts, done! 
A song, Arise My Soul, Arise, talks about our spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born. God's Holy Spirit answers to our conscience, to our spirit, that because of the blood of Christ we are born of God. This is a grace-filled kingdom. Notice, this is a secure kingdom. This is a secure kingdom. Uh, You can see that in verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom, a mountain which cannot be moved. A secure kingdom. Yet, and I should say and, not yet, and... This means that we as believers in Christ are incredibly privileged. Not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because of who we are in and of Christ. And this confronts us with deep certainty that the truths of Jesus are great and powerful, but with What Jesus has given us comes great responsibility. It's not that God stopped being holy and now in the new in the in the in the kingdom of Christ, uh, it's just the kingdom of love. No, God hasn't changed a bit. It is that Jesus has opened up a new and living path through the curtain right up to Him. And it is when we remind ourselves of God's beauty of holiness do we really fully appreciate the significance of what Jesus achieved. Hebrews here celebrates the accomplishment of Jesus in His sacrificial death precisely because God has not changed but He has given us His Son in our place. God is the same. The same God and Jesus brought His saving plan that was uh, uh, little by little laid out in the Old Testament to a triumphant conclusion. And so now He says on the basis of that, with great grace, great, uh, great love, comes great responsibility. Comes a, 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 an even uh, a greater burden uh, on us to, to live for the one who redeemed us with his blood. The one who held nothing back from us, but gave us everything in Jesus Christ. This passage tells us, don't turn from it. Verse 25. On the basis of all this, he says, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth. And he's talking again about Mount Sinai in that picture. If, if it was true in this, in that limited Sinai sense. He says, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now... Talking about Sinai. But now, at Mount Zion, he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And he's talking about the end. The end of all things. When Jesus returns in all his glory, and he sets things right, and he judges the hearts of every man. And he takes the earth that was under the curse 
and he shakes it. And he shakes the wickedness and evil out of it and he puts a new heavens and a new earth in its place. He says, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken. All other ground except Christ is is sinking ground, right? As of things that are made and those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. What he's saying to us is this. And this is the fifth warning in the book of Hebrews that really sums up all the 12 chapters in these verses. You see, we have a problem in our culture. In our culture, we think freedom is the ability to just do whatever we want. In the Bible, freedom is the ability to do what we should. And there has been a movement made popular by one of the key leaders, Zane Hodges, who's passed on, uh, wrote a book called Absolutely Free. Who says, you can turn away from Christ and renounce all that you said you believed in Christianity and you are still on your way to heaven because you said that, made that commitment at one point in your life and because once saved, always saved, therefore... You will always be saved. And I think he's partially true, but he's misguided on that. He says this, The biblical picture of a saving experience is masterful in its clarity and simplicity. And we would say, Amen. He says, A single one-time appropriation of God's gift results in a miraculous inward transformation that can never be reversed. And we would say, Amen. And he says this, though, since this is true, we miss the point to insist that true saving faith must necessarily continue. Of course, our faith in Christ should continue, but the claim that it absolutely must or necessarily does has no support in the Bible. It is sufficient to observe that the Bible predicates salvation on an act of faith, not on the continuity of faith, and he has some half-truths in there. But I want to draw your attention to what this book has said and let God's word speak louder than Zane Hodges. Chapter 3, verse 6. Those that who are saved have been born of God. They have a new heart. And we grow at different rates of speed. But God has a faith that continues. It doesn't end. It will dip. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to repent. He says, the scriptures say this. Chapter 3, verse 6. Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing the hope, what? Firm unto the end. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
That's why he gives us warnings like verse 12 in chapter 3. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence. What? And fast unto the what? The end. The God who has begun a good work in us will what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, he says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We've got to wrestle with these tensions here. A true faith is a faith that is not in an intellectual ascent like the devils have and believe that Jesus is God. The devils could come in here and teach a theology class and be more accurate than you and I could. Because they know it to be true. And it's not about intellectual assent. It's not about me saying, I know this is true. This is about hearts that are reached. That's why in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This is continuing, he says, needs to be upon us. And when we need help in that, he says in verses 14 through 16, Go to our high priest to find strength and mercy. And chapter 6, the strong warnings there. Verses 1 through 7. Turning away from Christ. In chapter 10, he's repeated this again at the end of the passage. Where he has said, If we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law, remember going back to Sinai again, without mercy, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. That means it's just less of saying that, that Jesus' blood is, 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 is a wicked thing and more of saying it's not an important thing. Strong warnings. And in verse 35, he says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of endurance. After that ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall one time live by faith. Now, the mark of the believer is a life of continuing faith, isn't it? Not a perfect faith. Well, misread me but a life marked by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure of And he joyfully says in verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition or unto damnation, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And he talks about what faith is, doesn't he, in chapter 11. He says this in chapter 12, 1 and 2 and 3, continue in it, continue in it, continue in it. There is a real trust and transfer at salvation. But the writer of Hebrews says, don't leave it. Don't leave it. The power to continue 
is fueled by faith in what God has promised. And let's close with this last part here. The responsibility of grace then. Back in Hebrews. The responsibility of grace. What is the responsibility of grace? Well, he says, he's telling us to hold fast to what Christ has provided. He says, you come to Jesus. Don't refuse Him. Hold fast to Him. Hold fast to His great promises that one day He will return and will make all things new. He will judge the living and the, and the dead. And verse 28, receiving this kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Seek first the kingdom of God is what he says. Not the kingdom of man. Do not love this world and its offers and its beckonings and its temptations. You cannot serve both. And John puts it this way in 1 John 2, 15-17. With a strong amen, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, and he's not talking about loving people here, he's talking about loving the world system. Eyes that just live horizontally. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all, you see here that love of the Father isn't in him. Saying there's there's a mark there, the life is not changed. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, and he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He's saying you get to heaven because you do the will of God. That's how you get to heaven? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that the mark of a believer is one who does do the will of God. Not perfectly. That's why we have Christ. That's why we have confession. That's why we have repentance. But there's a heart change. And that heart change is going to look different with a hundred different people, isn't it? But there's a trajectory that is set. There's a compass that is set. There's eyes that have a looking unto Jesus. These eyes need to be slapped back, to look back to Jesus this way and this way. And that's why we have each other. That's why we have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit living in us. But there is a push toward Christ. And it might look like this sometimes. But then it looks like this. And it might look like this. But then it looks like this. There's an overall trend. The responsibility of grace is to hold. Secondly, it is to believe. To believe what? To believe that it will be worth it all. When Jesus comes and He takes the rub of the earth and He shakes it out, and the wickedness is shaken off of it, and He rewards His children, it will be worth it. The Gospel is the good news of what God has given us in Christ. Discipleship in Christ makes very exacting demands, doesn't it? If any man will follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, Jesus said. He didn't say, if any of you super spiritual ones, you cream of the crop here, you three that have been with me, you come with me, take up your cross, he said, if any man. 
There's got to be a death before there can be life, isn't there? And in Hebrews chapter 12, the responsibility of grace is to hold fast. It is to believe it will be worth it all. Because although it makes very exacting demands on our lives, and Jesus demands all of our life, because He's Lord, it also offers enabling promises. What God calls us to do, He has provided the power to do. And then, in this passage, He says, out of this, serve. Serve Jesus. Out of gratitude of what He has given us in Jesus. Out of awe and reverence. He even uses that word there. Your lives are to be a living sacrifice to Jesus. My life is to be a continuous act of worship. Of Him. And not an act of worship of myself. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, please. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... In gratitude and awe for what Jesus has done, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed and patterned and shaped to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Folks, If you have come to find grace in Jesus Christ, He is not content for you to remain the same. He loves you too much. (laughs) He paid too much of a price to have you go back to the vomit that put Him on the cross in the first place. He tells us to be transformed by renewing our minds. Our thinking has to change. So the responsibility of grace is to hold, it is to believe, and it is to serve. Not offering, our, offering our lives as an act of worship to Him and not an act of worship of ourselves. And by the way, everything we do is a sacrifice to God or to ourselves. We're either worshiping ourselves or worshiping the God who saved us. Notice at the end of chapter 12, verse 28, he says, Whereby we may serve God, what? Acceptably. With reverence and fear and awe. You see, for all Christian people, earthly troubles as well as celestial joys are always on the horizon. And when everything around you is being shaken, God's people are not to be afraid, but they are to rejoice and press forward. And the secure, immovable, unshakable kingdom that they belong to. And that indebtedness to Jesus is practically expressed in obedience and confidence and reverence. God loves us so much. There's a reason Jesus gave a parable of sheep and goats. There's a reason he did that. There's a reason Jesus gave the parable of the soils and shows there's one soil 
that is a good soil, and that soil is the one that bears fruit. There's a reason that Jesus says there will be people shocked at the very day of judgment standing before God that he says, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a reason he describes people who bury the treasure of the gospel without appropriating its gift as cast into outer darkness. Maybe they were attached to people who really knew the Lord, but they themselves did not have personal faith in Christ. There's the reasons that there's a reason that the apostles mince no words about the fight of the believer and are very clear that the walk is not a cakewalk, cakewalk. It is not a bed of roses, but it is a soldier's course in a walk that relies on grace to finish. And the confidence that comes through us and the security that comes to God's children who are in his kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of Christ should not lead to a form of arrogance. And believers, don't ever take these great truths for granted. Don't trivialize them with flippant uh, attitudes toward them. Because what this passage is showing us is that If you are in Christ, you are to be grateful that an incomparably holy God has made himself known to fallen man. The fire on Sinai was a thing of the past, and it is done and gone with in that particular event. But the blazing fire, the river of fire of God's holy, jealous, righteous love will never be extinguished. And a believer knows that in the presence of that bright light, all my sins are exposed. But I can rejoice that mercifully in its flames they have been consumed in Christ. And out of that... I press on for Jesus. I don't turn back. And folks, there's three levels here that this passage applies to. First of all, believers who know the Lord Jesus, who need to be encouraged to press on, to keep renewing their minds in the Word of God, to encourage their brothers and sisters To walk with Jesus. To be the part of the end of that great commission where Jesus says, Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. Be encouraged and press on and do it by God's power. There's another category of people. People who have never come to Christ. And this life is all of heaven, they will know. If they do not turn to Christ, Jesus is calling and pleading. Softly and tenderly sometimes, but here I think he's shouting, Come. Come to Jesus. 
give your life to Jesus. Receive His life in your place. There's freedom. There's glory. There's grace. And a life that embraces Jesus' work. And then there's a third category, which is not so much a third category, but maybe a confusion of categories. Or perhaps, maybe you've been coming to this church since you've been a baby. You might be able to teach a Sunday school class or whatever it might be. But you have never really come to Christ. You've been attached to the things of God. But it's more like Mount Sinai where you're putting exterior clothes on. It was a physical thing, but it's never penetrated the heart. And you could give the answer to every single Bible question that was presented to you, but it's not here. And the invitation is the same to you as the, un, as the unsaved, because you may be unsaved. Come to Jesus. There's also another layer in here. In a group this size, it's very possible that there are believers who know the Lord and right now their consciences are guilt-ridden. Because they know they pursue the things of the world. And they are finding it is empty and it is just corn husks. And the Father is standing at the road telling you to come home. And the longer you delay, the harder your heart will get. And all of these people, Jesus says, come and find rest in me. And as we sing, or after the message, the invitation is to come to speak to me. Let me know how the Word of God can help you. What particular things the Word of God uh, uh, pricked your heart in that you need counsel in that you need help in humble yourself and come to Jesus I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a few minutes here the wonderful thing about preaching through books of the Bible is that you can't skip stuff And folks, I believe that God does not put us in situations and make circumstances happen without reason. And I know that God loves human beings enough to bring them into the earshot of His Word. Because He furiously desires to pursue a relationship with humanity. And if you need to take that first step to receive what Jesus did in your place, His death for your sins, His righteousness in your place, then come. Literally come. Come speak to me.
many other folks in here who would gladly unpack the scriptures of what Jesus has done and how that changes your life. If there's believers in here who need to come clean with sin and say what Jesus did for me was so great, I am so undeserving, I cannot live in this way anymore, then come for counsel. as the piano plays is to come speak to me it's not walking down an aisle that'll save you it's not a conversation that'll save you but I'm here and other people are as well to direct you to the scriptures that give the life transforming truth of Jesus that will save you so you come if the Lord's stirring your heart who are walking with the Lord keeping short accounts with Him be encouraged encourage one another ask each other how you're doing how's your spiritual walk what are you learning in the scriptures how can I pray for you grow in Christian community because this walk together is a community project and God didn't give us a church so we just be private and do our own thing. God gave us a church because He wants a redemptive community that links arm in arm. A community that doesn't gossip about each other but really desires to see Christ formed in us all. Perhaps you didn't come this morning, but you'd be more comfortable speaking to me uh, after the service. Uh, Feel free to do that as well.